Welcome, Weirdos. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. As a child, my family had a vacation rental by the beach in the quiet town of Phillip Island. Located in the southeastern part of the Australian state of Victoria, Phillip Island is known for its stunning natural beauty, diverse wildlife, and a range of activities that attract visitors from all over the world. The island is famously connected to the mainland by the San Remo Bridge that spans 640 metres, just under a half a mile. Many ride bikes or walk across the bridge, marvelling at the vast ocean that runs beneath it. One of the main attractions on Phillip Island is the famous Penguin Parade. Each evening, hundreds of little fairy penguins return to the island's shore after spending the day fishing in the ocean. Visitors can watch the penguins waddle up the beach and return to their burrows, a sight that is both magical and unforgettable. Another popular attraction on Phillip Island is the Grand Prix Circuit, which hosts the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix and the Australian Grand Prix. Visitors can take a tour of the circuit and learn the history of motorsports in Australia. But, in the early hours of September 23, 1986, the island was rocked to its core when it became the scene of one of Victoria's most horrific crimes, when 23-year-old Beth Barnard was viciously murdered. It would soon come to light that Beth was having an affair with 36-year-old Fergus Cameron, a member of the island's high-profile Cameron family and owner of the Grand Prix land. Police believe Fergus's wife Vivian, having discovered the affair, stabbed him with a broken glass and then drove to his lover's house in a murderous rage and brutally killed her. As a final indignity, police believe that Vivian carved the letter A for adulteress into Beth's chest. It's alleged from there Vivian fled the scene, drove home to collect her purse, then to the island's bridge from which she jumped. On the face of it, it was an open and shut case. A scorned woman driven by revenge and rage to murder, then suicide. But not everything about this case is quite what it seems. In 1986, Phillip Island was home to just 4,000 residents. To outsiders, the small and tight-knit community of Phillip Island might appear to be closed off and even secretive. 
One of those outsiders was a lady named Vivian Candy. Not much of Vivian's childhood and early life is known. However, it is confirmed that in the late 1970s, Vivian married Fergus Cameron and moved to Phillip Island. Considered quote-unquote royalty amongst the locals, the Cameron family did not welcome Vivian with open arms. Rather, they saw her as a threat to their extensive land holdings on the island. Vivian's marriage to Fergus had been happy in the beginning. The couple welcomed two sons, and close friends described her as a good mother and wife. But with the arrival on the island of young 23-year-old Elizabeth Barnard, it wasn't long before Vivian began to notice a distance between her and her husband. Fergus worked on the family farm, and in his spare time, worked at the Penguin Parade. It was here he met Elizabeth, Beth, Barnard. Four months later, Fergus employed Beth as a farmhand on the Cameron family property, and by May of 1985, their affair had begun. It is unclear when or how Vivian learned of her husband's affair. Having already experienced her own father's affair with a younger woman when she was just eight years old, Vivian suggested that she and Fergus undergo marriage counseling. During this time, records indicate that Vivian also used a telephone service called Lifeline an Australian suicide and crisis hotline where she talked about her issues at length with a trained professional. According to her friend Sue Chadwick, Vivian became increasingly upset about the affair and even, quote, lost weight and dressed a little bit differently, end quote. Sue continues to state, quote, I was told by a friend that she was doing that to save her marriage." End quote. Fergus and Beth's affair gradually became known within the small community of Phillip Island and began to wear on Vivian. Not only was Vivian experiencing the breakdown of her marriage, but with the Cameron family being so high profile on the island, the judgment from others surely exacerbated her feelings of distress. The affair would continue for another 16 months. On Monday, September 22, 1986, at approximately 9pm, Fergus arrived home to Vivian late. The couple argued and Fergus admitted that he had been with Beth. It was at this point that Fergus alleges that Vivian became verbally and physically abusive, striking him over the head with a wine glass and stabbing him in the back with the broken remains. The author of the book The Phillip Island Murder, 
Vicky Petraeus, who has studied the case for 30 years, has her doubts about Vivian's alleged attack. Quote, I think we always have to be really careful when we only have one account. They definitely attended the hospital, and Fergus definitely had injuries, but they never said how it happened, and no glass was ever located. I remember interviewing the crime scene examiner, and he said, We didn't find any broken glass. End quote. In addition, hospital staff commented that the couple seemed, quote, very much together, end quote, and that Vivian appeared to be genuinely concerned for her husband's well-being. The nurse looking after the couple even stated that she thought that Fergus might have fought with one of his brothers because she couldn't fathom that his injuries were at the hands of Vivian. However, before leaving the hospital, Vivian placed a call to Fergus's sister, Marnie, and asked if she could watch the children while they were out. Marnie states that the house showed signs of a struggle and that there was blood-soaked clothes and tissues in the kitchen and bathroom. She continued to state that she cleaned up the broken glass in the kitchen because she was concerned for the safety of Vivian and Fergus's children. At approximately midnight, Vivian and Fergus arrived home from the hospital. According to his police statement, Fergus claims that he and Vivian then agreed to end their marriage. Fergus also claimed that Vivian agreed that she would give up her children and that she would accept Beth as his new partner. Fergus also claimed that Vivian stated that she would leave the next day without her children and start a new life in Melbourne. Vivian's friends, however, say that she would never give up her children. She was family-orientated and would never have left them behind. Author Vicky Petraeus states, quote, That's one thing that Fergus repeats in his statement, that when she says, quote, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave those children with you because you're a great father and I'm not a good mother, end quote. Authorities think that Fergus may have been downplaying his involvement in what was soon to come. At approximately 1am, Vivian drove Fergus to his sister's house, leaving her two children sleeping in their family home. Fergus and Marnie watched as Vivian drove away. It would be the last time anyone ever saw her again. At 3am, Vivian placed a phone call to Robin Dixon, a family friend. During the phone conversation, she told Robin that she was at the hospital and asked her to look after her children overnight, to which she agreed. Then, in the early hours of September 23, 1986, Beth Barnard was brutally murdered. 
She was surprised by her assailant as she slept soundly in her bed. Her throat was cut, a tooth was knocked out, and worst of all, the letter A was carved into her chest. The mutilation of Beth's body was connected to the book The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, in which the protagonist is forced to wear a red letter A on her clothing after being caught in an affair with a married man. The murderer dropped the alleged murder weapon, a knife, by Beth's side and covered her body in a duvet before smoking a cigarette and leaving the scene. The next morning, Marnie, Fergus's sister, received a phone call from Robin Dixon. She explained that she had been looking after the children while Vivian and presumably Fergus were at the hospital, but that neither had returned. Marnie explained that Fergus was with her and they quickly returned to the Cameron family home. Upon returning home, Fergus noticed that the family land cruiser was gone, however assumed that Vivian had taken it. While Vivian had also not been heard from or seen since the previous night, Fergus had more pressing matters to deal with at the time, like checking in on Beth. Rather than go himself, Fergus placed a call to his brother and brother-in-law and asked him to drive to Beth's house and check in on her. It was there that they made the shocking discovery of her mutilated body. They drove directly to the police station where they reported Beth's death. At this point, Vivian was presumed missing. However, no one would make any effort to locate her until much later on. Led by Detective Rory O'Connor, Melbourne Homicide Squad was immediately called to the scene. The crime scene was processed, and the cigarettes smoked by the murderer and the alleged murder weapon were collected as evidence. When forensics would eventually come back, the DNA was a positive match for Vivian Cameron. It seemed like an open and shut case to investigators. Vivian was responsible for Beth's death. However, author Vicky Petraeus has her doubts. According to her research, the knife used to murder Beth and the one found at the scene of the crime are not one in the same. I spoke to the scientist who examined the evidence at the time and he was never certain that the knife found near the body was actually the knife that killed Beth. There was these strange double cuts, it was like a line and a gap and then a little cut and he had trouble saying that this straight kitchen knife could have made these cuts in the fabric which were repeated throughout the fabric of the nightgown. 
I spoke to a knife expert who knew of a knife that could have made these double cuts and he said that the knife was popular in the mid-1980s but it's since been banned. He sent me some sketches and as you can see the knife has a straight blade and then just near the handle it has two prongs. If the knife went in in a downward thrust or in an upward thrust, you would get the exact same tears that were in Beth's nightgown. Vicky seemed to believe that someone compromised the crime scene to incriminate Vivian. More on this later. At this stage, it seemed no one, including her family, was searching for Vivian. Vicky Petraeus questions, quote, The bigger question for me is they found out Vivian had gone missing in the middle of the night, and yet they all prioritized the girlfriend that they just found out about that morning. Let's go and make sure she's okay, above the sister-in-law and the wife that they had had for 10 years, and none of them went looking for Vivian." End quote. At 4 p.m., the Cameron family Land Cruiser was finally found near the San Remo Bridge. Around 13 hours after the suspected time of Beth's murder. But Vivian was nowhere to be seen. The car had been left unlocked, and Vivian's belongings were still inside. All day, as police investigated the crime scene at Beth's house, they had been driving over the San Remo Bridge and past Vivian's car. Yet none of them realized who it belonged to. Vicky Petraeus finds this strange considering police were given the car's description and number plate when the Cameron family reported Beth's murder. Police believe the location of the car strongly suggests that Vivian jumped from the bridge. Inside the car was Vivian's purse, a black handbag that was placed on the front seat. Police were informed that the black handbag was seen at the Cameron family home by the family friend Robin Dixon when she came to babysit the children at approximately the same time as Beth was murdered. For the handbag to have been in the Land Cruiser, this meant that Vivian left the scene of the murder, drove halfway across the island to retrieve her handbag, then back towards Beth Barnard's house to the San Remo Bridge, where she is thought to have committed suicide. To American investigators Lauren McCarthy and Stephanie Williams, who have examined the case at length over the past 30 years, this alleged route defies logical explanation. Quote, If I am in a murderous, suicidal rage... I'm not going to go kill someone on the opposite side of the island, drive back to my home, get my purse, then drive back to the other side of the island to kill myself. End quote. 
Victoria Police Search and Rescue were dispatched and combed the waters under the San Remo Bridge and surrounding areas. They expected that if Vivian had jumped from the bridge, they would find her body. They searched for four days, but no trace of Vivian was ever found. Head of Search and Rescue Jeff Frost concluded that Vivian may not have jumped from the bridge. He was adamant he would have found her body or at least some of her clothing or possessions. A witness finally came forward and made an extraordinary claim. Glenda Frost, who knew and had worked closely with Vivian as a community volunteer, told police she received a phone call at 10 a.m. on the morning after the murder from none other than Vivian herself. At the time of the call, Glenda Frost was with her friend Pam Lovett, who said that she heard Glenda take the call. Pam Lovett states, quote, At that stage, we didn't know about what had gone on. And then, at about 10 o'clock, I think it was, I was washing up at the sink, and the phone rang. And when Glenn picked it up, she said, Oh, is that you, Viv? So it was definitely her. End quote. Glenda Frost elaborates to say, quote, It was just a normal conversation, and it wasn't a long conversation. She was normal. Normal, normal, normal. End quote. To this day, Glenda and Pam have never changed their story. On April 25th, 2006, the Australian television series Sensing Murder covered the case of Beth Barnard and Vivian Cameron and turned everything investigators thought they knew about the case upside down. To some, Sensing Murder was a sensationalized television series in which psychics looking for their 15 minutes of fame appeared on camera to deliver messages from beyond the grave. Each episode included detailed reenactments of the events leading up to the murder and the murder itself. The show's producers claimed that before each episode, they tested between 70 to 75 psychics and mediums in both New Zealand and Australia with a case that had already been solved. The most accurate psychics were then shortlisted and the producers chose two or three of them to attempt to contact the spirits of the murder victims and to get impressions helpful to describe the victim, their circumstances around the murder, and the details of their death. Producers of the show stated that the psychics weren't given information about the case other than a photograph. While the show was often met with skepticism, it did run for a total of seven years and helped to bring light to cold and unsolved cases. 
to assist in the Phillip Island case. 100 psychics from across Australia were individually tested. Two obscure murders were chosen for the testing procedure. Presented with only a photograph of the victim, the psychics were asked to provide details of the crime, the location, and the killer. Of the 100 psychics tested, only five were able to describe intimate details in both test cases. Two of these, Debbie Malone and Ruth Wilson, were chosen to aid law enforcement in Beth's case. Both women were able to successfully identify information confirmed by police. However, they also revealed staggering new information that contradicted the original findings. While at the house where Beth was murdered, Ruth Wilson commented that she felt Vivian's presence at the house, but felt as though Vivian herself had never actually been there. Likewise, Debbie Malone felt that, quote, the woman in the glasses didn't do this, end quote. Vivian Cameron wore reading glasses. Both of the psychic's, quote unquote, findings supports author Vicky Petraeus's theory that the murder weapon found at the scene was a plant used to incriminate Vivian. Detective and psychic Scott Russell Hill was also brought on to help investigators in the case. While the coroner concluded that Beth was murdered in the early hours of the 23rd of September, Scott was adamant that Vivian had died sometime in the evening of September 22nd. How did he come to this conclusion? I'll let him explain. When I look at the spiritual profile, the vibration of the day and Beth's state of birth and her personal vibration peaked like a pyramid on the 22nd. Now, that's the day before the coroner says she was killed. It's just phenomenal to see this vibration happening, but it stops on the 22nd, not the 23rd. I'll explain it to you so you can see how incredible this is. Beth's date of birth was the 25th day of the 12th month, 1962. Now add all these numbers up, 24, 3, it comes to 55. This is Beth's spiritual number. Any other days that add up to 55 are the days when Beth was most prone to accidents, illnesses, dangerous situations, and even death. Now, when you add up the date that Beth was presumed to have died, which was the 23rd day of the ninth month, 1986, you get 23, 9, 96, 24, 56. So overall you get 55 and 56. However, if Beth died a day earlier, which was the 22nd, then it would equal 55, the same spiritual number as her date of birth. So I'm certain Beth died on the night of the 22nd because that vibration that I'm talking about ends at midnight. That's the day before the coroner determined. If Beth was indeed murdered on the 22nd of September, and not the 23rd as Scott suggests, Vivian was not involved 
as her timeline places her with Fergus. Regardless of his methods, Scott, much like Ruth, Debbie, and Vicky, also concluded that the crime scene appeared to be staged. But what happened to Vivian? Did she take her own life? Is she alive and well? Or did something much more nefarious happen to her at the hands of some unknown person? With no definitive proof, the mystery of the Phillip Island murder remains unsolved to this day. In 2004, the Camerons sold the Australian Grand Prix land for an estimated $20 million. Vivian Cameron's share would have been one-sixth of the earnings. Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Weird Chick. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and until next time, stay spooky. One Weird Chick's opening theme is created by Brielle Johnson, and logo is by Lauren Adams. Be sure to follow One Weird Chick on Patreon, Instagram, and Facebook for more.